0: Well, I ran my first marathon back in February 1993, Fort Worth, Cowtown Marathon. And I say it's my first marathon because it sounds a lot better than telling you that it was my last. But both, both were true. I've always thought that a marathon was 26 mi- a 26-mile run. For many people, it's a 26-mile race. For me, it was a 26-mile run and but you know it's not 26 miles have you heard that it's 26 miles it's a lie it's not 26 miles you know when i discovered that at mile 26 (laughs) i stumbled over the 26 mile marker and i'm looking around and thinking where's the finish line and i literally began to think maybe it's 36 it's 26.2 you think, why point two, But 26.2 is what it is, and I didn't realize that till we turned the corner, and then there's the finish line way down there, another almost quarter of a mile. But I've thought about that, that race or that run a lot through the years because it's given me a great, I guess, insight or parallel into life. We prefer, when we look at the Summer Olympics every couple of years or every four years, I guess, the Summer Olympics, We look at those uh, races and marvel at those athletes, but it's a whole lot more fun to watch the sprints than it is to watch the marathon. Have you noticed? Marathons are boring. They take so long. They take hours, only a couple of hours for even the best in the world, but still. You don't sit and watch it. You, you, you get tuned back into it. You see the highlights. You see the people that fall. You, know, you see the exciting parts of the marathon. And notice they end the marathon in the stadium, where it's exciting, when e- where everybody else is, where people like to watch races. We like to watch the races in the stadium because it's exciting. There's action. Um, we don't like to watch the long, grueling miles out in the middle of nowhere, Marathons are different than sprints. One takes seconds. The other takes hours. And in a sprint, we see the finish line the entire race. In a marathon, you don't see it till the very end. Until you turn the corner and realize you've got another .2 miles to go. But you know, in a marathon, you have no idea what's around the corner. A sprint isn't like that. A sprint is hard work and then it's done like that. A marathon is like life. Now, our busy lives may feel like a sprint, but in reality, they're marathons. Because we are given the challenge every single day to get up and to keep going. I still run. I don't run that far, but almost every time I'm out exercising, I think about... uh, two temptations in running because they are the two temptations of life and that is you either just want to flat out stop because it's too hard or you want to take a shortcut and get it over with faster. Those are the two things I deal with every single time I run. I dealt with it in training for the marathon and I deal with it in life and so do you. Our lives are a marathon of wanting to just quit or wanting to take a shortcut. Um, And I hope that, that you'll think about your life as a marathon, because the secret to finishing a marathon is just committing to taking the very next step. I love the movie Chariots of Fire, of course it's a movie about sprinters, not marathoners, but there's one scene in it that I really love, Harold Abraham's who is this uh, fantastic Jewish athlete who actually became a Christian before he died. I don't know if you realize that. In the movie Chariots of Fire, it starts with his funeral at the very beginning, and at a, the funeral was in a church, a Protestant church, because he had become a Christian. Anyway, he had lost his first race, and he'd never lost before, and he didn't know how to handle it. And so he was sitting, pouting in the bleachers, And his girlfriend came and and, and basically said, Harold, you're acting like a child. And he says, I lost. I've never lost. And then he made this great statement. He said, if I can't win, I won't run. And her statement was equally wonderful. She said, if you don't run, you can't win. What great insight. And I think a lot of people never see God working in their lives. Because they quit, they refuse to hang in there long enough before God can show himself to be God. God plans to show us that he's God, but that takes time. Because we have to, as Steve Ferrar taught us last hour, we have to come to the end of ourselves to realize that God's strength is the secret to taking the next step in the race. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark Chapter 15. Mark 15. We are in the darkest part of the life of Christ, and that is the end of his life, literally, his death. But it's also, in a sense, the brightest light, because Jesus shows us how to end well. How to end well. We all want to end well. There's no doubt that we're all going to end, but we want to end well. We want to come to the end of our race and break the tape well. Jesus shows us how to do that. You remember where we've come so far, and if you don't, you can just kind of glance back at where we stopped a couple of weeks ago at the end of chapter 14, and really the last few chapters we've made our way up through the Passion Week. Finally, Jesus, in chapter 14, has been betrayed, he has been abandoned, he has been denied, and finally, he has been condemned. He is all alone, literally all alone. All he has is the Father with him. Mark chapter 15, let's begin in verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests, with the elders and scribes and the whole council, immediately held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Here we have the chief priests with the elders and the scribes. This is the same group back, way back in chapter 11, starting verse 27 and following, that basically decide, we're, we've got to get rid of him. We've got to get rid of this Jesus. And they finally do. Of course, the night before, what we looked at uh, in chapter 14, the last time we looked together at, at Mark, we saw that they came to their conclusion about Jesus. But it was a conclusion that they had already concluded. They came to a verdict that was already decided, way back in chapter 11, and honestly they had decided it a couple of years earlier that they, they needed to get rid of Jesus. They made this, this decision, they came to this verdict, but it wasn't a real trial. It was an illegal trial, and they knew it was illegal. And so what they had to do is come together, as verse 1 tells us, early in the morning. So they have a now another trial, but this was just to make it official. They gathered, and the Mishnah tells us that the place that they gathered was actually at the southern part of the Temple Mount. They, they came together, and they had, they had this, uh, this meeting that was just a quick brush-up, make it official meeting. And some of the other gospels give a little fuller account of what happens here. Mark makes it real quick and says uh, they immediately held a consultation and, to make it official and then they took him to Pilate because their goal is to have Jesus killed. And Pilate is the only one that can do it because the Jews didn't have the authority, being under Roman rule, to, um, to bring about a death penalty. When the Bible speaks of what is called the time of the Gentiles, it speaks of the time from the exile all the way up actually through today, and it won't end until uh, the second coming of Christ to begin his kingdom. So the time of the Gentiles is a long time, and it's, we're actually in it now. The time of the Gentiles, it refers to Gentile domination of Israel, which is not a very politically correct thing to say today when you think about Israel as a standalone state or nation. But the reality is Israel even today is still very dependent on the Gentiles to be secure, namely United States and other allies. But the time of the Gentiles refers to the time when Gentiles had a heavy sway or even domination over Israel. And at the time of Christ, of course, this was the Romans. The Romans occupied Israel. They controlled it. They decided who uh, had authority and who didn't. You remember in the Christmas narratives of Jesus. When Herod the Great, who was given his authority by Rome, Herod the Great had authority over all of the, the area of Israel, and Herod the Great tried to kill baby Jesus, or toddler Jesus at the time, uh, and instead succeeded in killing all the, the boys of Bethlehem, because in a dream Joseph was, was warned to flee and to take Mary and Jesus and go to Egypt. Then after Herod the Great died, they came back into Israel, again at the, uh, at the Lord's urging. But we're told that Herod's son Archelaus was ruling. Archelaus, it was a bad guy. In fact, he was so bad that Joseph decided, we're not going to go back to Bethlehem, we're going to head back up to Nazareth and we're going to settle there. And in fact, Archelaus was so bad that Rome decided, eh, this king thing isn't working. Herod the Great did a pretty decent job because he told he did what, what we wanted him to do. But Archelaus, we can't have this happening. And so they said, we're done with the kings, or at least the kings having sovereignty in this area. We're going to put in procurators or governors. And so basically, I think it was about AD 6, the procurators or governors ruled over or had control over Israel and Judea. And Pontius Pilate was the governor or the procurator during the time of Christ. Pilate served as governor from A.D. 26 through 36, and Jesus' ministry was about 29 to 33. So Pilate was right there um, during the time of Jesus, precisely during the time of Christ. The New Testament refers to Pontius Pilate 56 times. And Pilate's name is also found, amazingly, in our creeds. Have you ever noticed in the, like the second century Apostles' Creed, as it's called, refers to Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. I mean, Pilate even gets his name in our creeds. The uh, uh, Nicene Creed also has Jesus, mentions that Jesus was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. Why include Pilate in our creeds? why include details of history and the gospels why not just say the, the governor but we're given him by name in fact he's mentioned 56 times because we have a faith that is rooted in history and it connects to historical people our faith is not just the christ of our of, of our faith as as so many liberal scholars believe today But he is the Christ of history, as well as the Christ of our faith. Because if it didn't happen in history, then it didn't happen. And so to make the connection with Pontius Pilate is a very effective way to show that what we believe is not just a matter of faith, blind faith, but we believe what really happened, that Jesus really lived. Pilate lived, for the most part, in Caesarea. If you've been to Israel, you've probably been to Caesarea by the sea. It is a fabulous place to go, the ruins there are wonderful, and it was the seat of Roman power for 500 years in Judea, 500 years. And that's where the procurators of the governors lived. They lived in Herod the Great's palace there. Herod the Great did a lot of great building, and one of the things that he did was make great palaces for himself, and there was one in Caesarea. If you go, you can see it juts right out into the Mediterranean. He had a freshwater pool. It was opulent place. Well, that's where Pontius Pilate lived. And it was called, in the book of Acts, that place is called the Praetorium. Well, Herod also had a palace in Jerusalem. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you go by the Jaffa Gate, the Citadel Museum focuses the area where Herod the Great's palace was. And that's also what the New Testament refers to as the Praetorium. It's the same word that's used in in the book of Acts. The Praetorium, or Herod's old palace, is where Pontius Pilate lived when he came into town to keep control over the feasts so that things didn't get out of hand which is why Pilate is in town at this time for the Passover. It's an interesting uh, sort of sidebar, but it's worth mentioning. Remember, again, in the Christmas narratives, the, uh, when the Magi came to visit Jesus, not Jesus, well, they came to Jesus, but initially they came to Jerusalem. And they went to Herod the Great and said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Which is not a question you want to ask Herod the Great, who was the king of the Jews. And Herod, you know, of course, went on to try to find Jesus and kill him. But he felt he was a threat. But anyway, when they came, when the Magi came to Jerusalem, where did they go? They went to Herod in his palace. Now, put two and two together, Pontius Pilate is living in that same palace. And these, and Pilate is asking Jesus, who is now standing in that same palace, are you the king of the Jews? Isn't that interesting? The Magi came and said, where is the king of the Jews? In that palace. And then Pilate, standing in that very palace with Jesus, has asked that same question. Are you the king of the Jews? Beginning of Jesus' life in that palace, that question is asked. The end of Jesus' life in that same palace, that statement is made. I love that when when that kind of connection happens. It's kind of neat. Well, for the chief priests, Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, they they called that blasphemy. But when they brought Jesus to Pilate, they didn't focus on the Messiah aspect of it, but that the Messiah was king, because such a claim to Rome would be treason and would be worthy of death, for there was no king but Caesar. Well, let's continue. Look at verse 6. It says, Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. A lot of the events that occurred during the Passion Week and even during the trials when Mark got around uh, to writing his Gospel ended up on the editing floor because uh, each of the Gospels, of course, has a specific purpose. The purpose of the Gospels is not to create an exhaustive account of everything that happened. The Holy Spirit inspired each of these writers to select certain events to portray a particular theme. And so Mark leaves quite a bit out. Mark omits the earlier trial before Pilate, as well as the laughable trial before Herod Antipas, and focuses on this final appearance here before Pontius Pilate. And what we aren't told here, and I I know that Dr. Toussaint's mentioned this to us before, but I'll just remind you that Pilate was under investigation at this time. He was a very cruel ruler. In fact, if you read elsewhere in the Gospel, you remember it says that Pilate mixed certain people's blood sacrifices with their own blood. I mean, he was cruel. And he was under under, uh, a scrutiny by Rome at this time, basically saying, you know, a couple more strikes and you're out. He was not an effective ruler because he was so cruel. And so Pilate was interested in saving his job. His goal wasn't justice. His goal was branding. His goal was him. And so, but he had to ask the question because he couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus. Uh, wh- what do you want me to do with him? I don't find anything wrong with him. But of course, they shout, crucify him, because the religious leaders whipped up the crowd to make that claim. You know, I think about a a certain president whose name obviously you would know because we know our presidents in recent years, who when he left office, and in the days before he left office, even up to the hours, he was handing out presidential pardons left and right, and he even made some that he said that he he later admitted he never should have done. And I think about that when I think about Pontius Pilate, because when you look at the, the different gospel accounts, we see Pilate admitting that he could find nothing wrong in Jesus, and yet Pilate deciding that Jesus had to die because of a particular reason. Look at verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. We could pause right there. This is what Pilate was all about. It was about crowd control. It was about not letting the the, the, the word get back to Rome that Pilate couldn't handle things in Judea. Pilate was doing all he could to save his job, he wasn't interested in justice. And so he released, uh, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they kept beating his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him. And they let him out to crucify him. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie *The Passion of the Christ*. It has a few things wrong with it, uh, major things wrong with it. But for the most part, honestly, it's great. It 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 it's great. And what what it's what I think is so great about it is it portrays probably the most realistic portrayal that I've seen. Of the Jesus movies, some of the Jesus movies—I mean, I don't know if it was low budget or what—but it looked like you know these B-rated actors that just walk around in flip-flops and bathrobes. You just kind of think, who produced this? Uh, some of the, but some, some, some are well done. Some are not that well done. But this one was well done because it portrayed Christ in all his human emotion. His humanity, his, his, his laughter, his relationship with his mom, his relationship with, with the disciples. But one of the things that it did, and it, and it, it earned an R rating. Uh, today, I think it would earn an R rating just because it talks about Christ. But an R rating back then in the 90s when it was released is because it showed the violent death that our sins required. You know, to to be able to be put on television, um, Jesus of Nazareth and the greatest story ever told, and uh, there's a few other movies that were done. You know, Jesus is basically flogged with a few wet noodles. But in the Passion of the Christ, we got to see probably the most realistic portrayal of what when, when we're told here that that Pilate released uh, Pilate released Barabbas and having Jesus. Scourged. If you've seen the movie, you remember the scene of Jesus scourging. And to me, it was far worse than the crucifixion. The crucifixion was, you know, you hammer his hands and nails in and you raise him up and then cue the, all the special effects. But the scourging, I try to watch that um, each Easter, the, the movie, because I just like to have a good reminder of what my sin cost the Lord. And uh, it's horrible. It really is horrible. Um, and I won't describe it to you except to say that what, what they used to scourge a prisoner was a, a, a whip with leather tongs and, and in it was embedded glass, metal, pieces of bone. It was designed to take off skin. And when Jesus was scourged, basically, it, it was so bad that Isaiah refers to him. Isaiah 52, verse 14, says that his appearance was marred more than any man. That's not hyperbole when you think of Jesus being scourged. The movies usually show Jesus carrying a cross, but the reality is prisoners usually only carried the cross beam, the horizontal part of it. And that alone weighed about 100 pounds. Uh, a, um, a railroad tie weighs about 160 pounds. So it's not a fair, 100% fair analogy. But imagine a small railroad tie, whatever that would look like, 100 pounds carrying this thing through the streets. And people, sometimes people rarely survive the flogging. Uh, of the scourging, because you lost a lot of blood, of course you were in intense pain. And so to be able to be expected to carry this this crossbeam that weighed 100 pounds through the streets to the place of crucifixion, Jesus couldn't do it. He physically buckled under the weight of this burden. And as a result, we're told in verse 21, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross." A couple of significant things here. Simon um, is from a place called Cyrene, a port in North Africa that had a Jewish community. Simon was no doubt in town for the Passover. He was one of the many from the, the diaspora, or the Jews that were scattered, but that would come to Jerusalem for the time of worship. Only Mark mentions Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus, because Mark is writing to Romans. And interesting, when Paul wrote to the Romans in the book of Romans, chapter 16, he mentions Rufus. And so for there to be a connection like that uh, from the same town, it's very likely the same person, Romans sixteen thirteen. Now, there's something else very significant about the way this is phrased, but I'm going to Leave you in suspense for just a minute about what that is, and we'll come back to it. Okay, look at verse 22. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. This wasn't justice. This was an object lesson. Crucifixion. Mark's Roman readers needed no explanation of what it was like to see somebody crucified. Because they saw it. It was... It was the way that the worst of the worst of the worst criminals were executed. Because, again, its purpose was to teach you. Not to punish the the person so much, but to teach the people watching, you don't ever want to cross Rome. Because when you cross Rome, this is what's going to happen. It was was a brutal way to die. Um, The Romans were experts at this method of crucifixion, Which and the exclusive purpose of being crucified was to prolong the agony. They figured out the way to where to put the spikes in in the hands or the wrists, where to put it in the feet, how to do it in such a way that prolonged the agony. It was almost like they had a dial that they could turn up the pain, turn down the pain, depending on how they want how long they wanted to prolong this agonizing experience. It was the third hour, we're told. It was meaning the third hour after sunup or 6 a.m., meaning it was 9 a.m. when Jesus' crucifixion began. And they put the charge above his head, the King of the Jews. I hope that you've noticed as we've gone through here, the King of the Jews continues to be mentioned a number of times. Um, In verse 2, Pilate question him, are you the king of the Jews? Then in verse 9, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Verse 12, what shall I do with the king of the Jews? Um, Verse 18, they mocked him, hail king of the Jews. And now verse 26, the charge above his head, the king of the Jews. And we're going to see it here in a minute uh, one more time. But this, what what was intended to be a mockery instead of proclaim the truth, the king of the Jews. And Jesus indeed was and is. Look at verse 27. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 28, you'll notice, is in brackets. Uh, It's very possible that it was inserted to try to make it... uh, to try to show that this is a fulfillment of Scripture. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. It's not essential to the flow, but uh, but it's there. But notice it says that he is crucified and two robbers beside him, one on his right, one on his left. Turn back, keep your finger here or, or save your spot here, but turn back to chapter 10 and look at verse 37. I mentioned we were going to bring Simon of Cyrene back into the picture, and he is coming back in just a a second. But first, let's look at chapter 10, verse 37. Remember this request by James and John? James and John came up to Jesus and said, we want you to do whatever we ask. Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And here's their request. Verse 37, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. The only other time in the book of Mark that this phrase, one on the right, one on the left, is used is at the crucifixion. Mark is making a direct connection to this because notice what Jesus says right after this. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? In other words, are you able to go through the suffering that I'm going to go through being on my right and on my left? James and John said, we're able, but come to find out when push came to shove, James and John fled in the Garden of Gethsemane like rabbits instead of clinging to Jesus. All right, now turn back to chapter 8 and look at verse 32. This is back when they were up in Caesarea Philippi. Peter made his great confession, you are the Christ." And Jesus says, you're exactly right. And let me tell you what's going to happen to the Christ. He's going to die. And Peter says, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus, of course, rebukes Peter for that. And then he makes this statement, verse 34, chapter 8, verse 34. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is especially poignant for Peter when he when he heard right after his his being rebuked that he must deny himself because Peter didn't do that, did he? He didn't deny himself, he denied Jesus. The denial went to the wrong person. Instead of self-denial, it was denial of Christ. Plus, the only other time Mark uses this phrase take up his cross was in connection with Simon of Cyrene. Who took up the cross of Christ? Interesting, his name was Simon. Simon Peter said that he would do it. He didn't. Simon of Cyrene had to do it. James and John said that they would be faithful. We want to sit at your right and your left. They didn't do it. And two criminals. Both of those, now back in chapter 15, are mentioned here in this same context. And isn't it amazing? that the three top disciples, Peter, James, and John, are here implied as places that they were missing and complete strangers were there instead. Simon of Cyrene picked up the cross of Christ and evidently it had a profound effect upon him or certainly upon his sons as they are mentioned, or at least Rufus is mentioned in the book of Romans. Back in chapter 15, verse 29, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Save yourself is mentioned more than once. Save yourself. And then the conclusion, the assumption, he cannot save himself. This is so important for us when we think about applying this to our lives because our natural reaction when we get into a situation like this is to save ourselves or to pray to God to do it. But the assumption then becomes, well, Because he doesn't, he can't. That's what they're saying of Christ. He saved others, he cannot save himself. Yes, he could. He could have done it in a moment, but he chose to be there. And the irony is, it says he saved others, he cannot save himself. The the irony is that by choosing not to save himself, he was saving others including the ones who were making these accusations against him. We can't assume that just because Jesus isn't removed from the cross, or in our lives, we can't expect that a sovereign God is always going to dance to our tune. Why? Because as Isaiah says, his thoughts are higher than ours, his ways are higher than ours. There was a lot more going on in, at the cross than mere injustice. God was at work. The same is true in our lives. Think about what Jesus went through and see if it doesn't mirror, in some respect, what you go through at times. You're misunderstood. You're falsely accused. You are rejected. You're abandoned. You're betrayed. You're denied maybe even to the point of you're 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 abused or you're killed and the assumption then is because god does nothing he can't do anything but the reality is just as it was true with christ it's true with you and it's true with me there is more going on than the injustice we're enduring god is at work he is And sometimes it takes a resurrection, as in Jesus' case, for us to to realize what God was doing. It may take our resurrection to look back and to say, oh, this is what you were about. The chief priests twist the knife in verse 32. They've inserted it, now they twist it. They say, let this Christ, notice they use His name. They had asked him about that. Are you the Christ? Yes, I am. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. The the ones that had condemned Christ to death were now taunting and challenging him. You want us to believe you're the Messiah? Come down off the cross. That would have been the worst thing for Jesus to do because he was dying for the sins of the world. We'll often offer God these ultimatums. This is what I want you to do before I'll believe. And the Lord, thankfully, didn't accept the, 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 the flimsy promise here of, of the leaders of Israel that they would accept him as Messiah. He would already done enough miracles to prove that he was. Coming down from the cross, I'm pretty convinced wouldn't have, wouldn't have helped. Well, let's finish up these last few verses here in um, this, this very challenging scene. Verse 33. When the sixth hour came, that would be 3 p.m., darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last." Jesus quotes from the psalm, Psalm 22, and where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because he quotes from verse 1 here, you can also assume, we can safely assume, that he's familiar with the whole thing. We know he was familiar with the whole thing. Well, Psalm 22 ends in triumph. So Jesus questioned to the Father, why have you abandoned me? Uh, Jesus knew why it was happening, but he was express- expressing emotion that any of us would feel, and even in doing so, he was, he was trusting himself to the hands of the Father. We're told that he, he made a loud cry, and then, and then he died. Um, he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last Matthew and John said that he gave up his spirit. Luke says he committed his spirit to the Father. Jesus chose the moment of his death. And notice he waited until the Father had forsaken him. Jesus at that moment had entered into spiritual death. Physical death is when the soul is separated from the body. We see that all the time. But spiritual death is when the soul is separated from God. And this is what sin requires. As soon as Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, there was a separation, a spiritual separation from God. And it wasn't until Jesus experienced that punishment on the cross for all the sins that had happened before that and all the sins that would happen after that, including the ones that you've not committed this afternoon and the ones that I'll commit tomorrow, all have been forgiven. Don't think that just because you accepted Christ at a certain point that he's not forgiven your sins that you still commit day by day. What sins had you committed when Jesus died on the cross? None. He paid for all of them, even the ones that you've yet to commit. Um, Turn back to chapter 1 real quick. I know it's 12 o'clock, that's that's fine. Turn back to chapter 1 real quick. And I want to show you something in verse 1. Mark is great at doing sandwiches, that is, of starting something and then bringing it back to a conclusion. Look at the very first verse of this entire gospel. Mark writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He refers to Jesus as the Son of God. And now look down in verse 10 at Jesus' baptism. We're told, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice out of the heavens, you are my son, my beloved son, and you are my, I am well pleased. So here in this context, we have the, the heavens opening. Literally, I don't know if you remember, all the way back when we started in chapter 1, we talked about the heavens not just being opened, but ripping. It's a very mild translation. A better translation is that it was ripped. In fact, it's such a good translation, that's the translation that they use in chapter 15 when they speak of the veil being torn. It's the only two times in the whole book that the, uh, that word is used. Look back at chapter 15, at verse 38. The veil of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was The Son of God. There it is again. Son of God. That's how Mark began the book, with the heavens being ripped, and God saying, this is my son. This is how Mark ends the book, pretty much close to the end, saying the exact same thing. The veil of the temple is ripped, just like the skies are ripped. What does the veil in the temple being ripped signify? That now we have access to the holiness of God, whereas before our sin kept us separate. But now Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That sin is paid for, and immediately the way is made open that we can come to God through Jesus Christ. It also signified the end of the Old Testament. At that very moment, the Old Testament was over. Remember, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood, the New Testament in my blood. As soon as he died, the Old Testament was done, and the veil being torn shows that. Uh, Mark has shown from beginning to end that Jesus is who he says that he is, the Son of God. I want to read to you as we wrap things up one verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Paul writes, And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Let's pray. Our Father, we read about the crucifixion Probably a hundred times in our lives. And today is just another another stroll through Mark chapter fifteen. But we need this reminder. We need to see afresh the the broken body, the spilled blood of our Savior, because it happened because of us. It happened because of the sin that we've committed. Um, and others. But, Father, we think for a moment of our own personal sin. Thank you that you sent Jesus Christ not only to teach the truth and live the truth, but to die in our place on the cross, a death that was so horrible that fully paid for the sins of all humanity, including our sins, even the sins that we've not yet committed. We also ask, Lord, if there's anyone in this room that has not yet placed their faith In the messiah jesus the one who died in in their place that they would place their faith in christ and have their sins forgiven thank you that that veil was torn that we can come before you with confidence to the throne of grace to find grace and help and mercy that we need in times of need and father help us keep running the race Plotting in this marathon of life, just as Jesus did, all the way to the end, he was faithful. He continued to cling to the truth, knowing that even though all had forsaken him, that you, Father, ultimately would not. And as the veil was torn, there was this unspoken assumption, Behold my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And because he is accepted, Lord, we know that we are in him. And it's in him that we pray, amen.